0: Good morning, everyone. Peace be with you. Thank you. Welcome again to Sojourn. Uh, My name is Dodds. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, like Katie said, this week we're continuing in our sermon series entitled Liturgical Living. And our hope for this series is to show how our Sunday liturgy, which is the content and order of our gathering, instructs us on how we approach God, how we commune with Him and how we live as his people throughout the week. Last week, Brandon gave us an overview and introduction to liturgical living. So this week, we're going to be talking about how the Sunday gathering and how tangible elements within the life of the church can actually provide assurance to us that we are God's children and his beloved bride. Before we get to those objective places of assurance, I'd like to take a moment to just talk about assurance. Each one of us is involved in a a lot of different relationships with parents, with friends, with neighbors, and coworkers, bosses, spouses, children, family members, even uh, cell phone providers and gym memberships. (laughs) We're in relationship with a lot of people, a lot of different people. And in all of those relationships, depending upon how important or close or involved they are, we can often wonder where we stand with people. It's a struggle for me. I'm often wondering where I stand with other people. How is this friendship doing? How healthy or intimate is my marriage? How does this family member view me, think about me? I'm sure that the rest of us have those moments. We can begin to twirl in a lot of subjectivity usually based on how bad or good, confident, or insecure we feel about that relationship. And it's no different with God. We can wonder where we stand with Him. How does He think about us? How does He feel about us? How does He act towards us? How do we know that we are His and that simultaneously He is ours? How can we be sure that we will be with Him when we die. Now, I know we're talking about the assurance of salvation, how we can be confident that we belong to God and that He belongs to us. I know that's a big topic, but we're talking about this because we know that it's a struggle for all of us as image bearers, and we want to be able to point to different things in the life of our church, objective things that will give us confidence in Christ, confidence that will feed our worship, confidence that will feed our mission, confidence that will feed our love, worship, and love for one another. So it is important. At the heart of the church's assurance of salvation is this, union with Jesus Christ in his death, resurrection, and ascension. We are in right standing with God the Father by our union with Christ's resurrection, adopted in Jesus, made alive together with him, sanctified by the Holy Spirit that is living in us and thereby made into a nation of priests and kings in Jesus the great priest and king. Now, among evangelical Christians, assurance of salvation has been presented as something more subjective than objective. In the 1500s, when the Reformation was happening, the church's assurance of salvation was one of the largest obstacles between the Roman Catholic Church and what would become the Protestant Church. So for a very long time, Roman Catholicism had, had asserted that no one could be assured of their salvation. It was considered arrogant and presumptuous to be sure that you were going to spend eternity in heaven with God. So conceivably, this meant that for many hundreds of years, nearly every Christian lived their lives in fear, unsure of what would happen to them when they died. And when the Reformation happened, one of its largest assertions was this, because of Christ's union, because of the church's union with Christ through faith, every Christian could be assured of their salvation. After so many years of believing just the opposite, can you imagine how scandalous this must have been? In Christ, you can know that you will be with God when you die. You don't have to go to the grave with your fingers crossed. Let's read from our passage again, the first two verses. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. I'll keep going. For God has done what the law we can buy the flesh could not do. By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, He condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. When Paul says that there's no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus, he's talking about the body of Christ's standing with God the Father. God's Word tells us about our position with Him as our children. And to be not condemned means to be free of any liability, of any penalty. It means that there can be no charges levied against those who are in Christ. In other words, Condemnation will never come to those who have placed their faith in Jesus. It's not that we're momentarily out from under condemnation and that it might come back. No. There is no condemnation at all for those who are in Christ. It no longer exists. Why? Because on the cross, Christ was condemned. Therefore, those who are in him will only receive favor, blessing, honor, grace. Teaching, discipline, not condemnation. Now, it's not uncommon for us to believe this, that if we confess sin and then live a good life, that we'll be forgiven. That at that moment, we are not condemned, but should we sin, we fear that we're back under condemnation until we confess and repent again. This can, this can keep us feeling that what we're doing is moving back and forth, even in Christ, moving back and forth between condemnation and grace. But this does not square at all with what Paul is saying. God is both a father and a husband. A parent or a spouse can be disappointed, upset, displeased, angry with their child or with their spouse and not condemn them. Does God experience displeasure for us in our sin? Yes, He just doesn't condemn us for it. He condemned His Son, and this is the foundation of our assurance. But for as much assurance as that gives us, we do still struggle to believe that it's true. It's very common in our circles for people to pray for assurance, and I completely understand that desire. But we truly don't need to treat assurance as though it were something that God withholds or something that we need to receive post-conversion. When we pray for assurance, it seems as though instead of trusting Jesus directly, we are trying to trust our own trust of Him. If that were the case, then we would be saying, you can be sure of your salvation when you're sure of your own assurance in Christ. But this creates an impossible cul-de-sac that has us just going in circles. It's unhelpful, maybe even hurtful at times because it undercuts the richness of of our worship, by directing the attention of faith away from its true object, which is the risen Jesus, and it puts it back on us. We're waiting on our trust to be enough of trust to then know that we can trust. <laughs> Trying to trust your trust, striving to have faith in your faith is not what is expected of you. If that's where we are, then we're perpetually waiting on our own trust to be strong enough and worried that our standing with God is always in flux as a result. Scripture regularly describes the relationship between the church and God as a binding covenant marriage. So in the same way that a husband and wife don't need to wait until they die to figure out if they were really married, we don't have to wait until we die to find out if we are truly sons and daughters of God how crippling it is to face life, death, service, radical generosity, laying our lives down, or anything else we're called to do in the church in that lack of assurance. God's commitment to the relationship with his people is not conditioned by our commitment to the relationship. God will remain faithful to us. Really, whatever we do, that said, the covenant relationship cannot be one-sided any more than a marriage can be. If there is no faithfulness to the relationship from our side, the relationship will die, even though God never ceases to be faithful to that relationship. There are subjective elements to our assurance, most certainly, but there are also objective elements, and this is what I want to concentrate on today. Not to the exclusion of that subjectivity, but I really want to zero in on objectively what can we look at? as we struggle with assurance. If the Bible presents a more objective understanding of our assurance of salvation, wouldn't that be something that's worth exploring? How would it change your worship, your witness, your confidence, your contentment, your discipling of others, your willingness to die to yourself, or even literally die for the faith, if you knew that there was objective evidence that you do belong to God? Let's consider some objective evidences of assurance. Number one, baptism. Baptism is every Christian's entrance into the church. In baptism, we become royal subjects of the kingdom of Christ and members of God's household and family. Paul writes earlier in this letter to the Roman church that all Christians have been united to Christ in His death and resurrection by baptism. Really, baptism is like a wedding ceremony in which God makes promises to us and pledges His unfailing love and commitment to us, and that makes us His bride. And to the person who knows their spouse to be faithful, reflecting on the marriage vows that their spouse has made can be a considerable source of confidence and assurance. Baptism is a powerful source of assurance to those of us who walk in faith. I know we can make this a little bit more tangible. The reason I know that I'm married to Kimberly, she's right here in the front, the reason I know that I'm married to Kimberly is because there was a ceremony. And at that ceremony, we vowed to one another in the name of God that we would give ourselves wholly to one another and no other. And through that ceremony, we became one flesh. That ceremony accomplished something that is true no matter how either one of us feel. The reason I know that I'm married to Kimberly is also not based on where I feel I stand with her because if that were true, we would be married when I felt emotionally connected to her and we would cease to be married when I didn't. But if I feel like she's distant or I'm distant, it doesn't nullify the covenant. In fact, being reminded of our marriage ceremony, this objective event, this thing that happened that we can point at, look at, remember, assures me that we truly are still married and it inspires me to erase the distance between us. We are still one flesh and that covenant that was made through that ceremony assures us of that and it's the same with our baptism. Number two, communion. If baptism is our entrance into the body of Christ, then community is part of how we stay in the body of Christ Let's read from 1 Corinthians 10, 16. Is not the cup which we bless a communion in the blood of Christ? Is not the bread which we break a communion in the body of Christ? If these two things are true that Paul is stating here, that union with Christ is the fundamental reality of our assurance of salvation, and that the bread and cup are communion with Christ then communion is most certainly part of what nourishes our union with Christ. It feeds our assurance. The Lord's Supper is a ritual exercise of our union with Christ. It's an outworking of our baptism. God shows us through this meal that He considers us righteous, and the fact that we are fed by our Heavenly Father is a sign of our adoption. It's a tangible, visible sign that he has adopted us. Through bread and wine, we're joined to the power of the risen Christ who is present in and through his spirit at this meal. In the supper, we are raised to heaven to feast on Christ, enthroned in heavenly places, admitted to this holy place, this holy banquet, to eat sacred bread together. We should embrace the truth that sons and daughters of God not only live by faith, but feast in faith and feast on faith at this dining room table. I was, um, I was diagnosed with dyslexia when I was in fourth grade. And some of my classmates found out about it and they stopped sitting with me at lunch. And really, every cafeteria visit from then till now, I always feel like, is there a, is there a place for me? Will people eat with me? I'm pretty sure a lot of us in here feel that same way. We don't graduate much further from that, do we? Is there a place for me? Will you eat with me? Honestly, this is a table where you have, where all of those in Christ have a saved seat. Have a saved seat. There is a Father who sets the table, brothers and sisters, that we'll eat with you in thanksgiving, and that should give us confidence that we belong to him and that he is giving himself to us. Baptized Christians who regularly commune within a fellowship of believers around this table have every reason to trust in God's favor towards them. Tangible, objective evidence. I belong to God. He belongs to me. Now, it's important for us to know this, that when God has given us in baptism can be resisted and rejected in unbelief. We can turn away from those promises. The mere fact of baptism is no guarantee of future salvation taken by itself. On the other hand, we also recognize that our assurance grows weak when we're distant from God when we're not being obedient to Him, when we're not relating properly to our brothers and sisters in love, and we're not looking to Christ by faith. And this goes to show why church membership is so important to the life and health of the body. This is another tangible, objective evidence of assurance. Church membership is essential to our assurance. When church members... Elders, deacons, members, when we fail to guard the church's holiness and members are allowed to walk in open sin and not receive rebuke, correction, care, encouragement, the lines get blurred and whatever assurance we might have derived from our church membership begins to deteriorate. We can even begin to wonder if the body we belong to is even united to the head. So members of sojourn, As part of our assurance, our collective assurance, we have a responsibility to one another. As we minister the truth of God to one another, as we teach one another, as we correct one another, we encourage, it's part of what fortifies our assurance in Christ. We have a responsibility to one another's assurance in that. Don't take your role lightly. It's real and it's important. When we guard the church's holiness and encourage it through church membership, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are overjoyed that the body, that the bride is cared for and thriving and growing and maturing, and our good standing within the body is a constant reminder that we are truly united to the head and in good standing with the Father by the power of the Spirit. Perhaps many of you have been part of a church where the leaders and members didn't guard the bride or its members. And part of our hope for you at Sojourn is that you would be protected and guarded and that we would see to each other's care in that way. That said, looking to our own obedience can never be a source of assurance, but the obedience of faith is certainly the way of assurance. So how do we know that we're in right relationship with God? How do we know? Not by reflecting on our own works, but by walking by a living and working faith that directs its eyes to Christ. As we walk in such a manner, the commitment that God made to us in baptism and makes to us in the communion meal becomes a source of increasing assurance and comfort. Often our unfaithfulness leads to a weakening of our faith. And when that happens, the temptation becomes to look only at ourselves in the mirror to look only at ourselves and our sin and not at Jesus and His righteousness. And when we do that, we begin to behold only this, our own seemingly horrifying reflection, which is far from being transformed into Christ, and our countenance as a result becomes so deformed that our vision of Christ becomes even more blurred and fragmented and our assurance fades. We stare into the mirror And become captivated by our own ugliness and miss his beauty. But there is hope if we put the mirror down and stare into the radiant and merciful, forgiving and powerful face of Christ. We will be captivated beyond our own ugliness and be caught up into his majesty. And all of this is what makes our liturgy so important and another tangible element of our assurance because it's designed so that none of us, none of us can make it through the week without gathering with the saints to go up the mountain and meet with God as His body. Now, often in Western evangelical sermons, or circles rather, (laughs) in Western evangelical circles, our sermons get the most attention because that's where we've Probably been told that God is speaking to us most directly. But truly, God is speaking to us throughout this entire gathering. We just have eyes, we just have to have eyes to see it. Our liturgy is a scripted heavenly dialogue with God. And He speaks first. When Britt came up here and read the introductory scripture and said, Shout for joy to God all the earth, sing the glory of his name, it's not really Brit that's saying that? It's Him saying it, but it's God saying it. He's saying, come to me. Come to me, my people. Come to me, my bride. Come to me, my children. Come to me and lift your voices, and we respond. He speaks, and we respond, and we sing songs of praise and adoration and acclamation to Him, and He shows us His holiness and we're aware of our sinfulness, and so what do we do? We confess our sins. This beautiful dialogue. And He responds to our confession by cleansing us of all unrighteousness, forgiving us, pardoning us in His name, assuring us that we are forgiven in full, and then in response to that, we ascend to heaven in songs of thanksgiving in response to our forgiveness. He gives us peace through Christ and then we share that with one another and the dividing walls between us all fall. And as we ascend to him, he nourishes us with his word. He sets this communion table and we dine with him and one another. And then he sends us out as well-stocked temples of the Holy Spirit nourished in grace, our faces glowing from his presence as we take the light of Christ to the nations. And I can tell you this, if you are engaging with the liturgy, responding to God's call to worship him, singing with your brothers and sisters, communing with the Lord and one another, confessing your sins and receiving forgiveness, receiving his word and eating this meal, you are thereby standing in the congregation of the righteous. And according to Psalm 1, no evil men and women can do that and stay. Brothers and sisters, these are the tangible evidences of your assurance, of our assurance. These are graces and nourishments to your trust and confidence and in Christ, and they illustrate the reality that you are His and He is yours. I know that after this sermon, we're going to struggle with assurance, we'll still fear, we'll still worry, where do I stand with the Lord? Where do I stand today? Where do I stand now? It's been really dry. It's been really difficult. I don't know where I stand with him today. But there is hope and assurance even there because our shepherd and Savior knows what it's like to be afraid. And during his lifetime, he was a source of calm to his people. He spoke to his disciples repeatedly, Do not be afraid. When, When he came to them walking on the water, his first words were, Be of good cheer. It is I. Do not be afraid. When the three disciples cowered on the Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus came near and touched them and said, Don't be afraid. Do not fear, little flock. It is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. What wonderful words of assurance and promise and invitation there is there. You are worth more than the birds in the air. God has numbered every hair on your head. Do not be afraid. These are the assurance, building invitations and words of our King. And despite the fears and horrors that awaited him, Jesus embraced the cross for the joy that was set before him, and even after the resurrection, he continued to reassure his disciples with fresh infant emphasis. Do not be afraid, the angel tells the woman at the empty two. Do not be afraid, he says, when they see Jesus for the first time. He keeps reassuring them when he was with them and when he ascended, when he died, when he resurrected. Assurance, assurance, assurance. Do not be afraid. It is I. I am with you. Jesus' reassurance works. The woman at the tomb, afraid and joyful and stunned and glad all at once, fall down in their fear to worship at the face of Jesus. But their fear doesn't drive them away. It drives them to him. When they do finally run, they're not running in fear, but with uncontainable, overflowing gladness to tell the disciples of their risen Savior. Jesus commanded this kind of fearlessness into an age of fear. In his resurrection, Jesus ended the old world of fear and began a new creation, began a new humanity. But fear, we know, is not a relic of the past. But at every turn, Jesus' message is the same. Every circumstance, do not be afraid. I've lost my savings. Do not be afraid. My family is falling apart. Do not be afraid. I'm sick and there's no cure. Do not be afraid. You lose your reputation. I'm losing my reputation. I'm losing the respect of others. I'm losing my friends. Do not be afraid. Your spouse abandons you. Do not be afraid. You doubt your salvation. Do not be afraid. Jesus speaks these words to each of us in our individual circumstances. He speaks these words of peace to our world at large. Fear is everywhere in our world, and yet Jesus says that we have nothing to Fear. Because he conquered fear. He overcame fear. He ascended over fear, and he sent his spirit to inhabit and form a fearless people. That's what the resurrection did. That's what the incarnation did. We have an incarnated assurance. We have a resurrected assurance. We have an ascended assurance, tangible, objective, and it has never been more necessary because Jesus died to tame our fear. And that includes our fear of, are we His, and where do we stand with Him? Assurance is not a feeling, it's a person. It's Him. Where do you stand with Him? In Christ, you stand where the Son stands. In the heavenlies, at the right hand of God the Father, forgiven, absolved, nourished by His Word, blessed with every spiritual blessing. I don't know every spiritual blessing, but you have every one of them, sustained by his meal, benedicted to take his glory to the nations by the power of the Spirit. There is great assurance for us, brothers and sisters. Let us pray. Father, before the world came into being, before the mountains came forth, you were there. Lord, your word says that you made the eye, you know what it is to see, You made the ear, you know what it is to hear. I'm sure that we could take every body part and say that you really know what it is to think, to feel, to act, to speak, to hurt, to teach. You are the maker. Father, we pray that you would so feed us with these nourishments, baptism, communion, the Sunday gathering liturgy, Confession, Repentance calls to worship. Lord, songs of holiness, songs of lament, songs of repentance. Lord, your word spoken, your nourishment coming forth, your, wo- your word coming down like rain to the earth, like water to the bride, washed in the water of your word. And this meal that you set, a place where we can come and know, I belong to him and he belongs to me. Oh Lord, feed our faith, feed our assurance, feed our trust of you. And when we're tempted to look in the mirror again and only consider what would keep us from you, may we look at Christ and see again no condemnation. There's nothing separating us from you in Christ. Feed us. Teach us, make us these kinds of assured people that are willing to die to ourselves so that others might live, we might. Lord, see, Lord, you get the reward of your sacrifice. We love you. Please help us, we pray, and we ask it in your name. Amen.